0: Welcome to the program. This is Tevi Troy. This week I am guest hosting on New Books in Politics. Our guest today is Andrew Breitbart, the author of Righteous Indignation, Excuse Me While I Save the World. Andrew is an internet provocateur, the owner of a number of websites that aim to take down what he calls the Democrat media complex. Andrew had a somewhat conventional upbringing in California very much a product of the media but also had what he calls a series of epiphanies that have transformed him from what he calls a go-along get-along liberal to a very provocative and engaging conservative who is looking for ways to change the way the media influences the political debate in this country so without any further comment we will lead into the interview with Andrew Breitbart, the author of Righteous Indignation. Hello, we have Andrew Breitbart on the phone. Andrew, how's it going? I'm doing very well, Tabby. Thank you for joining us today on the New Books in Public Policy podcast. We're thrilled to have you. You have this new book out. It's called Righteous Indignation. And the way you can tell that a book is selling well is when you see it in an airport bookstore. And I saw this in the bookstore in Indianapolis yesterday. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. Well, I, I do the
1: Greg I do the Greg Garrison show in Indianapolis every week, and, and he's been very helpful. To he understands uh, what it is that I'm trying to do out there. Not everybody
0: does. Well, uh, that sounds like a, a perfect segue into uh, the conversation. I'd love to know what what it is you're trying to do, and also um, who, who you are and how you got your start. Wow, that's what the book is about, Righteous Indignation.
1: It is about who I am and how I got my start. And I'm I'm not your typical right-winger. I started off life as a default liberal, and I spent much of my life through my early 20s having gone to press school, having gone to uh, Tulane University with an American Studies degree, thinking that I was inherently virtuous on the basis of my default liberalism. And then when I graduated into the real world, I started to have some very awkward feelings that started to challenge the liberal orthodoxy that I had been handed, not just in the theoretical academic world, but the reinforcements that I got from Hollywood and popular culture and the mainstream media, and uh, a series of epiphanies which are described in great detail in Righteous Indignation, I started to challenge the matrix, um, which I called the Democrat Media Complex uh, in the book, and that is the Alliance of the Democratic Party, liberal interest groups, and the mainstream media to define the American narrative. And that American narrative very much creates some simple defaults. If you're for the children, you're liberal. If you're against the children, you're conservative. If you're for the environment, you're a liberal. And if you're against the environment, you're conservative. If you're anti war, you 're liberal that means you must be pro war and you must be for pillaging and raving as well and I had a very simple worldview view that by simply at a cocktail party stating that i was anti war that I was pro children and pro environment um, it it caused me social it, it gained me social benefits but when i entered into the real world and had to get a real job, and self-esteem and survival was born upon the ability to find an employer that was willing to pay me, uh, which meant that I had to provide something in return, my sense of entitlement hit a wall, and I had to start providing my wares, my work, my time for somebody, and I started to get paid. And I started to gain a self-esteem that had been deprived of me within the artificial world of academia that said, if you are liberal, you have self-esteem because you're an inherently good person. So those were the first seeds of doubt uh, that were planted in me. And then I started to see that the mainstream media was rigged and Hollywood was rigged and academia was rigged. In order to create this false narrative, I decided to fight back. And it's been, a I would say, about a 16-year journey in the new media uh, where I've developed some tools, created some websites, worked on some important websites in the new media that have allowed for me, not just as an individual without a newspaper or a major network or a radio station, I've been able to create some tools and hand off some tools to the average citizen that now realizes that if you don't like the Democrat media complex and you don't think that they're telling the truth, people tools so that they can start to fight back
0: yeah, you know I would add one slight amendment to your kind of rules at the beginning about it if you're for the children you are you're a liberal I say if you're for the children, you're considered liberal, but if you have lots of children, you're conservative. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, there, there, there are there are any points of uh entry when it comes to the left, I'm pointing out the hypocrisy of their point of view. I mean on the I'm for the environment. Well apply that to any of the celebrities or the politicians that want to give those people who have actual children more than one point two which would be the liberal policy if they could create a one child, 1.3 point child liberal rule? Is that we who have more than, uh, you know, 1.3 children, such as me, I have four children. We are being told by Cheryl Crow, Arianna Huffington and uh, Lori, David, and the rest of the celebrity class that we shouldn't have an SUV when these very people fly between their coastal liberal enclaves where they have large houses in private planes. So hypocrisy is the beginning point of taking on
0: uh, the Democrat media complex. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Arianna Huffington and then in there because you got your start in, in many ways with her. I mean, your, your first... The, the, the first uh, time that you were noticed by the the wider media was when you helped uh, create the Huffington Post with with Arianna Huffington. What was that like and uh, what what are your relations with her like now?
1: Oh, my goodness, my relations. Uh, You want to go there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I started off in, in a very interesting uh, position with Ariana Huffington, where I was her lowly researcher back in 1997. Matt Drudge introduced me to her, and she gave me my first uh, Lexus Nexus account. So I'll be eternally grateful for her giving me this and I'm an information addict and she gave me my you know my greatest direct connection to the mother load which is lexis Um she was a conservative back then and so the first thing that we did when I worked with her was to disinter uh, the Clinton's number one uh, donor Larry Lawrence from Arlington National Cemetery because he had falsified that he had been a merchant marine uh, victim of a, a, a German uh bombing attack on, uh, on, a, on a ship called, the, the, I believe, the Horace Bushnell. Um, it was a complete made-up lie, and President Clinton created a waiver for him to be the first non-military member to be in Arlington based upon the false claim that he was a merchant marine. So the first thing that I did with Ariana was get a guy dug up from Arlington National Cemetery. So she gave me my first taste of what it was like to enter the media fray, to go after uh, your political opponents and to expose things that the mainstream media wouldn't report. Not only did Ariana have the final say in that because he was disinterred, I learned everything I needed to know about the Democrat media complex by their reflexive uh, attacks on her, where they attacked Ariana Huffington claiming that this was the lowest that that they had ever seen a Republican go, falsely claiming that a guy wasn't a war hero. When it was in fact through everything that she was reporting, Um, the mainstream media went scurrying for the hills Nobody apologized. I remember Maureen Dowd said that what she did was beneath contempt. Maureen Dowd never apologized. CNN never apologized. Being on the left, being in the Democrat media complex, means you never have to say you're sorry. So a lot of the tactics that I use with minded media is accepting the premise. It's the most important thing that a person getting into new media has to understand. The mainstream media is the Democratic Party. It is is the communications arm of the Democratic Party. So if you have a potent story of corruption like acorn, like James O'Keefe and Hannah Giles did, when they came to me, I told them, your peril is an acorn. They're weak cheese. Your girl is going to be the mainstream media because they're going to defend them. No matter how much truth, no matter how much awful video you portray, uh, showing that every office except for one and about 10 offices, aprons willing to help aid and abet a bimbit a prostitute trying to set up an underage, uh, illegal alien sex slave operation using government cash, Um, instead of ACORN being under scrutiny uh, by the mainstream media, by the Democrat media complex, I told them, I predicted, as it came through, that James, Hannah, and I would be the objects of the Democrat media complex's ire and perpetuity for exposing an organization that they have protected for years because it serves their liberal
0: interests. You know, it's interesting in, in the section in the book where you talk about this, I guess you're, you're asked at what point, I guess by James, we're going to take down Acorn, and you think, no, we're going to take down the media, which is an interesting response. Also, um, I, I also found that interesting that in that whole opening section, when you talk about your, we want to take down the media, you are so much a media product. I mean, all the TV you watched and the movies and the music, I mean, that, that kind of made you who you are, but you're also very hostile to it because you see there's an ideological agenda at work that it kind of is tied together in a way that maybe you don't realize when you're watching, I don't know, Gilligan's Island, and listening to Green Day. Yeah,
1: no, I, I definitely was a product of it, and and it benefited me. I was a go along to get along God, but I think that something profound happened to me. Seeds of doubt were planted in me when I went from my morally. his children and Hollywood executives and stars and and media dwellers and, and the people who were shaping the national dialogue. When I went to New Orleans and I went to the Monroe Dormitory at uh, Tulane University and I met people from Angeles, and I started hearing at cocktail parties and at dinner parties that were inhabited by the elite in Hollywood where they would talk about flyover country and talk about how stupid people were, and they would talk about a political mindset that almost treated these people like, we are so smart and we are so superior, we need to create a political class, we need to create a political environment where we're controlling them because they can't change their own uh, and I remember having conversations with these people that weren't yet based upon my belief that I was a conservative or Republican because I didn't even know what that was but I remember defending their valor and their their, their righteousness. I said, I know these people. Do you? You went to school at NYU. You went to school at Harvard. You went to school at Stanford. What, what are your interaction with middle America? Because mine has only been positive and I don't think that people in Hollywood are in much of a position to lecture middle you know, Americans on how they lead their lives. I mean you know, you turn over every stone in Hollywood and you're not gonna find that many people who aren't addicted to either drugs or their own self worth based upon the fact that they're an extra in a in a sitcom. The narcissism and the, the hideous behavior in this town is too much to bear especially in the context of these people lecturing middle Americans on what they have, what they should think and how they should behave. You know, that's an interesting point
0: about Hollywood. You turn over everybody and then you know, there's a dysfunctionality to the lives there. And even just today we read in the newspaper about the, the one Hollywood marriage that we thought was maybe a real one, the Arnold Schwarzenegger marriage. is you know, They're headed for divorce also. And I know in your book you, talk, you have a little story, I guess, because you played tennis with Arnold Schwarzenegger and he tried to kill you or something. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean I
1: I voted for Arnold Schwarzenegger, so there's a, a a tad bit of hypocrisy in this story, but I was it was it was between him, a porn star Ariana Huffington and, and the late Gary Coleman uh, in, in the great uh uh great Davis Recall election, I believe of nineteen uh, of two thousand and four, I believe it was, maybe two thousand and three. Um yeah, I I I said I grew up quasi a child of privilege right my parents were middle class my dad ran a restaurant my mom was a bank executive uh they 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 lived on the cusp of middle class middle class and upper middle class lifestyle in a very upper middle class part of west los angeles called Brentwood. and i just remember going to private schools with the right people and my parents took me at the Malibu Racket club at the height of the late 70s Bjorn Borg Jimmy Connors uh you know, uh you know, tennis uh, era, and my tennis instructor was the tennis instructor to the stars, coincidentally, a guy by the name of Steve Lawrence, and I remember one day, Sarah Fawcett, I had a Sarah Fawcett iron-on t-shirt back then, at the height of uh, uh Charlie's Angels thing, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know where Steve is, Steve Lawrence, the instructor. I said, oh, absolutely, and I took her on a wild goose chase for about 20 minutes just to be with her. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was another person before he was as famous as he was, but I think that this was kind of Conan and Conan the barbarian phase. He would take lessons uh after my lesson uh or before my lesson. And I remember well Arnold Schwarzenegger uh when when I would come up there and I would help clean up the the tennis balls, you know, like after a lesson there are about two hundred tennis balls, you know, that are that are that you pick up with this thing called the lobster. And I just remember Steve and Arnold used to go to the service line and try and hit me and my friend Larry Solov, who happens to be my business partner now. So he and I are willing to testify under oath and to take lie detectors on this, and he and Steve would do everything they could to take these 10-year-olds and serve the ball, and and, and make it so that we were stuck in a corner somewhere, towering, and then they would have a field day just pouncing us with these 100-mile-an-hour serves where the two of us would have to cry uncle. Usually, where we we were laughing and crying at the same time because we were in so much pain. And I have to be honest with you, when people talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger as being sadistic, I experienced it. It was it was all done in quasi good fun. But in hindsight,
0: it doesn't it doesn't seem like the type of thing that I would do with a ten year old stranger. No, I would hope not. Uh, I know you'd be willing to testify on it, but I would suspect that the Statue of limitations is up on that one. I, yeah. <laughs> you talk about the...
1: Uh, I, I forgive him, especially
0: considering he's going through personal troubles right now. Yeah, that, that, that's clear. And uh, kind of you to forgive him. The, you, you talk a little bit about you know, the contrast the, the, between a Hollywood uh, childhood and a Midwestern childhood. But in, in any ways, you kind of had a pretty conventional childhood you, yourself. You had that interesting line at the beginning of the book. You said that the night that the first sushi restaurant opened in California, your family had meatloaf. Uh, Do you think that helped give you this sort of differentiation from the kind of dysfunctional L.A. scene?
1: That my parents planted the seeds of conservatism in me and that the natural tendency when you're 14 and 15 years old to trail away from your parents' tutelage. I mean, who wants to go out with their parents on a Friday and a Saturday night when they're 14 and 15 years old? You start wanting to hang out with the cool kids, you start dating, you start wanting to say the right things, do the right things, you start. Uh, Your relationship becomes something, if not strained with your parents, it becomes of alienation. And my parents were silent generation types where most of my, my parent my friends' parents were baby boomers going to the right concerts. I just remember my friend Jeff, I love his dad to this day, but Jeff's dad, one night, was taking a limo from the Brian Ferry concert to go to the Rod Stewart concert in one night. And it was the same night that my mother was watching the Lawrence Welk show on television. And it was just such a bizarre juxtaposition. And so in hindsight, I realized that my parents were silent generation conservatives who believed in conservative ideas, conservative ideals. Um, behave that way, spent their money that way. They saved their money. They didn't spend it conspicuously. And eventually I had to come around to the, you know, almost embarrassed, you know, when I was 23, 24, 25 years of age, coming to my parents and having to apologize to them for having strayed. And, you know, they really didn't even take it, take offense to my, my off years. I think that that was their whole point was, Kind of like I think the uh, Amish with Rum Springer. Hey, if you want to go test your oats for you know, sow your oats for a few years, that's fine. And I'm glad that they gave me um, you know my my current conservative underpinnings for me to discover you know the
0: juxtaposition. Yeah, it sounds like you not only had conservative-minded parents, but you also have a conservative-minded father-in-law as well. And I guess he introduced you to Rush Limbaugh initially.
1: I got very lucky in that regard because as I was starting to have those awkward hinges uh, of conservative doubt of my liberal background. I was waiting tables in the uber-liberal section of, of Los Angeles, r g Venice, and one of the celebrities that I, you know, I remember waiting tables on, you know, people like, uh, you know, Julia Roberts, but one of the regulars there was Orson Bean, and I remember watching Orson Bean, you know, on the weekends come over there with the the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I thought, boy, Orson Bean was always the most sophisticated guy out there. He was a tour on The Tonight Show to tell the truth, and I knew who he was, but he was almost like Christopher Hitchens, you know, almost how do you even hold a conversation with a guy that's that smart? Well... I started coincidentally starting to date his daughter, who I eventually married and then have four children with. And during the period of time that I started to date her, I started going over to his house for dinner and, and to hang out. And I remember seeing that he had Rush Limbaugh's book, on his shelf, and I remember having an, uh, a conversation with him where my assumptions of Rush Limbaugh's guilt were emblazoned in my brain, and I remember saying, oh, why do you have this book here for ironic purposes? He says, no, I, I like Rush Limbaugh a lot. I said, are you kidding me? He's a racist, a Nazi, a, you know, I had all those reflexive, you know, talking points in my brain, and I look back on it, and I swear, and this may be as instructive for you, or others, When you hear a lefty say that, and you ask, have you ever listened to the show? They say, of course. They always say, of course. They haven't, because I believed it. I would have passed the lie detector test at that point. When Orson said, have you ever listened to the show? And I said, yes, of course I have. But I hadn't. I had just been told so many times by so many people in the popular you know, culture, that he was a racist and this, that I just took the word for it. And as I started to recognize that there was a um, an inequity in, in the mainstream media, that, that, I, that you're being indoctrinated, not given a series of different ideas so that you can make up your own. When I started to realize this, there was no better guy. There was no better Yoda. Uh, for me than Orson Bean, because he went from being a blacklisted communist in the late 1950s who had, uh, Ed Sullivan himself calling him up with regret saying, You were in the Red Channel's newspaper, and, you know, stating that you were on the, the left, you know, communist side of things. I, I can't withstand the heat to put you on the TV. And so for Orson to have come from the far left to being a right-winger, living on the Venice Canal opposite George Carlin, and he was living the same bohemian life that I aspired to live, Um, But he happened to have conservative values. I, my doubts on God, which, you know, I'm I'm agnostic in the book. I keep having enough things happen in my life where it's almost impossible to doubt the existence of God because I don't think that I would have been able to make the, 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 not just the. The, 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 the traveling aspect from left to right, but my self-confidence, my use of humor as a mechanism to convey my ideas, of comfort in my own skin would not have happened had I not had
0: Orson as my Yoda. It sounds like both of you are sort of a proto neoconservatives in a way. Uh, but but uh, the Rush thing and the Orson thing, they, they sound like part of a series of, of epiphanies that you had, and I, I know the, the the next and perhaps most important epiphany you had was when you first heard about this Internet thing, and uh, and particularly Matt Drudge. Can you talk about how influential that was in, in shaping your, your path and your world view?
1: Well, I mean, I would say that from 1992 to 1996 was a bridge um, from doubting my default liberalism to becoming a conservative. And Orson was there guiding me over that bridge. But around 1995, at at, at a moment of time where I needed this, I happened to meet Matt Drudge and I happened to get on the Internet. Not AOL, not CompuServe, not Prodigy, all services that I had had in the early days. Of you know the, the modem and you know that type of communication, but the real Audubon that was the internet around 1995. I met Drudge and he came over to Orson's house when we were babies—not babysitting, but house sitting while Orson was out of the country. And I met Matt Drudge, and because I started to read his newsletter, the Drudge Report, very early on, and it was such a fascinating mix of politics and insider entertainment industry information that that nobody else was reporting and a strange mix of uh, uh, earth sciences, earthquakes and tornadoes and stuff like that. Just such a unique mix of the news, an interesting mix of the news that I reached out. found out he lived in Los Angeles. He comes down to the Venice Canals. And I talked to him for four hours when he's not on his job at the time as a manager of the CBS gift shop where he folded, you know, designing women t
0: shirts.
1: I didn't know it yet that was his first job. Yeah, and I remember thinking that this guy was definitely not of my west side Los Angeles ilk of Harvard, Stanford, working for you know, uh, working in the executive suites as a as a lawyer or a, a a creative executive in Hollywood, this guy was kind of in the bowels of the industry holding t-shirts and I listened to him talk about the media and, and to talk about politics and this nascent internet environment and as he put, putted away in his Hyundai uh, in the uh, the Venice Canal alleyway, as he drove away, I looked at my wife and I said, that guy is a visionary, he's going to change the world.
0: Yeah, and uh, in many ways, he, he has. Um, you, you later, um, you, you talk in the book about your time as an American Studies major at, at, um, at Tulane. I'm an American Studies PhD from University of Texas, and something you said really struck me about how when you do American Studies, you read a lot more Adorno and Gramsci than you do Twain or Lincoln or Jefferson, and I, I found that to, to be the truth when I was doing American Studies, and it really... uh. It kind of irked me. I mean, I, I thought I was doing this degree to learn about the classics of, of what, what makes American civilization great. And what really we were learning about was the Frankfurt School, of school and, and European Critics uh, of America. Can you talk about how that helped shape well, you? So you, so, so you agree with me?
1: Like, so you're, you're saying, because that to me was like the one controversial aspect of the book because I'm rebelling against a professor that, and I was lured under false. Pretenses into an American Studies course, you would think that it would be raw, raw on the Constitution and raw, raw on on the you know on supporting the underpinnings of what it is to be an American. And it seemed to me, especially in hindsight, uh, when I graduated and I felt that my degree was anything but helpful in terms of giving me the tools and the mindset to enter the real work work. At the end of the day, they're teaching you that the American middle class, the bourgeois experience, is an inferior manufactured one that is is being done to oppress... working class to the expense of of an elite, you know, governing, you know, ruling class. And it's hard to get an entry-level job after, you know, four years of of hearing this type of oppressive jargon that somehow the person that you want a job from is somehow out to exploit you. And I, I thank God for alcohol because I don't think that had I not been in New Orleans doing in Rome what people are supposed to do in Rome, doing in New Orleans what people are supposed to do, and that's drink a lot. I don't think that I would have been savable had I completely imbibed the American Studies Frankfurt School uh uh you know uh drug because it's a very sexy uh, it's a sexy place to go. It's a sexy place. It, it grants you victimology. It, it grants you a place at the cocktail party set on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in Hollywood and in the academia set to run around with this, with this grand philosophical world view that somehow the people in flyover country are dupes and that there's only a, a specific ruling class of people that are smart enough to see through the matrix. And it just pissed me off that my parents wasted an education that at the end of the day turned me into a glorified uh Kurt Cobain um a nihilist with a with with, with a you know uh, with with a chip on my shoulder against my fellow countrymen. Yeah, I think uh,
0: my uh, favorite or perhaps least favorite notion from the Frankfurt School was uh, by Herbert Marcuse who had this notion of repressive tolerance that Americans oh, yeah, aren't that's really free. Like,
1: that, that's political correctness in a nutshell. Repressive tolerance is that's why conservatives are always called intolerant and people say, but I don't understand. I'm tolerant of other worldviews. views. I, I may disagree with that person, but I'm tolerant. But that if you are against the progressive order, you know, of moving towards the progressive point of
0: view, then
1: that means that you're intolerant.
0: Yeah. Um- I mean, the, the the whole notion of American studies is probably worth its its own separate podcast. Well,
1: I'm glad you agree because I mean, I really
0: I, I I find it ironic because
1: I wanted to go along to get along, and during my period of time there, I just wrote the bare minimum, uh, and I knew I knew what I had to write, I knew what I had to say in order to graduate by the skin of my chinny chin chin. But I remember feeling dejected. I remember reading these books. I remember reading this weird jargon. I remember thinking there's something wrong here. And if if I can start the conversation to get people talking about what has happened to the humanities departments in the name of cultural Marxism, which is what the Frankfurt School is about, um, then I'll be very happy.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, my approach was recognizing how open American studies was, meaning it had no real structure. Finding places within that lack of structure to take courses that actually interested me and allowed me to graduate. Uh, you, you talk uh, you had a really interesting section on uh, on Bill Marshall, how you kind of went in very prepared and kind of threw him for a loop. And, and I think the the end of that story, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about it, where Sarah Silverman kind of snubs you as you're walking off the set, but Dwight Schultz from the A team praises you and thinks you're great. And it sounded uh, it was very typical of the, the A list. Celebrities have to think one way, whereas D-list, D-list celebrities are are freer to to think what they want. Do you, do you find that to be oh, an I,
1: appropriate solution? I, I would reject the, uh, the classification of Dwight Schultz as a D-list celebrity. I, I go, I, I, I resent, and this isn't about you. He lives in in the normal world now. Is that it's very difficult, you know, for you to just say, you know what, I'm no longer going to be in the world of celebrity. I, I see, you know, Paul. Or Peter Weller he, uh, has, has gotten a PhD. Rick Moranis decided to leave uh, Hollywood to raise his children. And there's this weird gradation and class orientation that people have. That really, uh, you know, if you're a celebrity and you decide to get off the carousel, you're 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 you're, you're no longer cool somehow. Well, Sarah Silverman is super. The, the queen of cool. She she serves up. Her, uh, her anti-politically correct, politically correct comedy. She knows it because she's a woman and she's a pro-Obama supporter that it provides her inoculation from uh, doing the very jokes that, a hey, Sam Kenison or Andrew Dice Clay or any other Caucasian, you know, uh, uh, the meeting would get attacked for. Anyway, I was on the show and I decided to stand up for what I believed in because the last time I had been on the show, a friend said, yeah, you got a few laughs, but why did you stand up for what you believed in? And I realized that I was trying to go along to get along, went on the show that that, that next time with a singular intent where I realized that my critic, my friend, understood that I was trying to be liked by the people in the audience and by Bill Maher and his uh and, and the people backstage and I got into war basically with the audience, I got into war with Maher, and I got into war with sociology professor and Frankfurt School acolyte, Professor Michael Eric Dyson, where in essence the subtext of the entire 30 minutes of anti-comedy was that Rush Limbaugh and I and the Tea Party um, were all racist and I just fought it for a half hour and as I left the stage it was awkward. The, the, The place had been fumigated for comedy. It was just one half hour of awkward television as I was walking off the stage. To what was a funeral parlor in my my dressing room, as I walked by uh, Sarah Silverman, whose dark humor i I mostly appreciate, she walked by Dyson. she spoke in an in- in incomprehensible. You know, iambic pentameter. You know, the only Noam Chomsky could decipher. And as she walked by, she said, "Oh, you did so great!" And then she looked at me like I was the devil. Walked to my seat with the camera on it, wiped her hand on the sleeve, looked at the audience and to the camera, and said lying me, alluding to me. And it was a strange experience because I did go back to the the funeral parlor, um, saw my family and friends, and they were mortified that I was so you know humiliated by everyone that could possibly reject me, rejected me in front of millions of people and as they were trying to assuage my concerns and my feelings, I looked at them and said, you have no idea you could not be more wrong the thing that I feared the most this very rejection was like an injection of, of confidence self-confidence and energy that I had been waiting for the thing that I was most fearful of was the thing that I needed the most to break through. And that's what much of the book is about, is trying to teach people that these Alinsky tools of trying to demoralize you and make you feel like you're the anomaly, that you're crazy for having these anti-Frankfurt school thoughts about America, that you're crazy to think that Palin isn't the devil. You're crazy to think that Michelle Bachman, Alan West, Marco Rubio uh, and Chris Christie on the devil. That you're crazy not to think that the U.S. military aren't a net positive, not just for this country, but for the world. You're not crazy. They're, they've created a pop cultural system and an academic system to have you doubt, uh, you know, whether water is wet. And I'm trying, I'm, the, the book is to Corey, I'm a Pied Piper. I'm telling you, come on, join the fight. You know, that which you're most fearful of rejection, societal rejection, don't be afraid of it because once you realize that you can stand up to the bully and that you can punch the bully and you can knock the bully down, the bully doesn't know what to do because his entire gig is based upon the realm of fear. That if you stand up to
0: him, that
1: you're that you're never going to live another day. And and I'm telling you, it's the
0: exact opposite. Sounds like you've gone a long way from your initial go along to get along approach in, in your childhood.
1: Um, uh, yeah, I guess I overreacted <laughs> to to it. It, it. I still wake up in an out of body experience, thinking that this is my life. and I wake up on Twitter and that there's usually 100 or 200 messages uh, of disgust from the organized left by the Twitter left attacking me personally, calling me gay, calling me evil, calling me racist, and it's it's my daily affirmation. That and coffee gets me up and running, and uh, it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun to, you know had this trajectory, there are a lot of us Ron Silver, Dennis Miller next month David Mamet has a book coming out called The uh, The Secret Knowledge on the Dismantling of American Culture he's yet another guy who's standing up to the democrat media complex, uh, a lot of us are starting to awaken to what happened and I believe that the Tea Party and new media uh, represent an existential uh, Weapon set against the control of the narrative that the left has had for forever. And I think that I I think that we could win. I think we could take back the American narrative for people who have long created the perception that they're the majority when in fact they're the minority.
0: It's interesting, you mentioned uh, Ron Silver, and on your book, on page 216, you talk about a burgeoning conservative Hollywood movement, and I wrote that phrase down with three question marks next to it, because Hollywood is so famously and reliably liberal. Well, is it, Do you think there's really something going on where there's going to be a transition towards a more conservative Hollywood down the road?
1: Uh, well, anything. You can't get, it's already more conservative by virtue of this group and these people existing, because nobody knew it. Everybody has been in Intimidated into their own individual closets. So every conservative that's existed out here has maybe two or three friends or family members that they can confide in that they disagree with the prevailing orthodoxy because the left, at the end of the day, is punitive. Uh, its repressive tolerance is uh, inherently intolerant. To anyone that would challenge that George Bush is evil or that Sarah Palin is crazy and evil. I met these people, big Hollywood, and uh, the website Big Hollywood became a huge magnet for these people to reach out. Um, my my uh, book with Mark Evner, Hollywood Interrupted, was a big magnet to people because it was a critique on the Hollywood left. And these people have found me, and they found each other. And it's not going to, you know, it's not going to get better in two years, four years, or six years in an election cycle. It's going to get better on a generational thing, and it's going to have to happen with these people starting to realize that they need to find investors in the conservative world, and that we have to engage David Geffen, Steven Spielberg, and Jeffrey Katzenberg in, in the commerce of ideas uh, within pop culture. We have to create content that actually is entertaining and good, uh, because I credit these totalitarians and these you know uh and, and these people who claim that they don't blacklist while well, they do they do they do put their money where their mouth is they do use capitalism very well uh they open up markets in order to sell their their product. Conservatives need to put their money where their mouths are and actually start to take advantage and make it. If, if conservatives make films, if conservatives create film companies, then those conservative actors can go out there and say conservative things and still keep getting hired by conservatives who are making the films. Right now, after going out on Fox News and saying, I heart Sarah Palin, they have to go and get a job within the liberal establishment. And, and trust me, the word spreads quick. Uh, That you are no longer on the team as Dennis Miller and David Mamet and Ron Silver would have told you, um, etc. There is no love for those that fuck the liberal orthodoxy in this
0: town. Andrew, you've been very generous with your time. I'd just like to finish up by asking you our signature question here on the podcast, which is based on what you've learned in writing the book, are there any policies that you would promote or or push forward uh, that that our listeners could uh, hear about? Well,
1: you know what? I think my anti-answer may be a profound answer, is that... I'm tr- I've always said the cliché that, that uh, politics is downstream from pop culture, and I am so focused on trying to t- to change things, to radically alter things on a revolutionary front in the mainstream media, uh, in Hollywood, and in academia by exposing the indoctrination process that we talked about, that I'm going to entrust those people that write for me in big government to- things. When I go on Fox or CNN and they want me to be talking about policy, they're basically hitting me exactly wrong. I'm not even that political a person. I just hate that in the United States of America, the repressive tolerance, political correctness, the controlling of the narrative by the left, the totalitarianism that is inherent in all left-wing totalitarian countries and institutions, whether it be Venezuela, the former Soviet Union, whether it be Cuba, whether it be Turkey. Uh, In the name of the free speech movement, creating anti-free speech initiatives, whether it be the fairness doctrine, whether it be calling everybody reflexively a racist, sexist, or homophobic, I want to free up the debate. I want to, I want to, I want to wrest away control from the totalitarians and make it so that there are more voices out there so that policy can be debated between people because at the end of the day, I believe that free market ideas went out the day when you live in an environment that is free market when it relates to free speech. And so I am so not a policy person. Um I'm a I am am you know at the end of the day I'm 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 ironic. I hate smoking. And I started to see the slippery slope begin towards cheering and totalitarianism when something that I can't stand smoking was in you know, anti smoking laws were instituted in, in bars and in restaurants where private citizens uh you know, who put all their money towards their investment of having a restaurant. If somebody wants to create Moe's drinking lounge, uh, you know, all-smoking drinking lounge, I think he should have the opportunity to do so. But when the nanny state comes in, the, the, the Bloombergs of the world come in and start dictating policy for the greater good at the expense of freedom—that's when I have a problem. Even when I benefit from those policies, and so my contradictory point of view is: I, I stop the anti-smoking laws because even though I agree with them in terms of my personal preference, I believe in the free market uh, too great to allow for my my independent benefit to outweigh my. Philosophical benefit, which I think is what this country is founded upon, and that's freedom.
0: Well, the uh, it, it's a certainly a different answer to the question. Usually, they're they're more micro based on a specific policy in the book. But you you do raise an interesting point, which is that politics is the means by which people get to implement policy. And for that, I thank you, and I thank you for joining us on the interview today, and good luck with the book. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Breitbart, the author of Righteous Indignation, Excuse Me While I Save the World. In our talk, we have a fun-filled conversation about Andrew's attempt to bring down what he calls the Democrat media complex, his upbringing in California, his experiences with Arnold Schwarzenegger and 100-mile-an-hour serves, aimed at his head, And his general thoughts about how media affects our culture and our politics and how he is hoping to change it using the new media. I hope you enjoyed it. This is Teddy Troy for New Books in Politics. And look for me in my regular spot as the host of New Books in Public Policy. Thanks very much.